I'm J.R. Woodward. Welcome to our social landscape, where I'm joined by Canadian musician Bruce Coburn. I started this blog in 2020, and in the midst of that summer of COVID-19 lockdowns and the international protests over the police treatment of people of color in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers, I decided to reach out to artists, broadly defined, to see if and how art can effectuate social change. The first person I spoke to in this vein was Patterson Hood of the Drive-By Truckers, but the first person I actually reached out to was Bruce Coburn. In those three intervening years, I've been fortunate to talk to a host of artists, from Bill Laswell to Rob Garza, Vincent Valdez, Willie Vlaughton, James McMurtry, James Williamson, Carl Denson, et al. So, finally get a chance to talk to Bruce Coburn after three years of harassing his manager, Bernie Finkelstein, feels like icing on the cake. And I'm not sure the interview would have even occurred, but for the assistance of Martin Joseph and Nikki Woodhead with Pipe Records. As I was finishing up my interview with Martin this past July, we started talking about Bruce Coburn and some similarities between them that I saw, and he told me that he knew Bruce and Bernie Finkelstein, and he would put in a good word for me when he saw Bruce at the Greenbelt Festival in August. I don't know exactly what happened next, but Nikki emailed me at some point and said Martin had reached out to Bernie and I should try again. So I emailed Bernie on a Sunday, and the next day he wrote me back and said, okay, let's do it this Thursday afternoon. Bam, done. Whatever political machinations may have occurred, I'm figuring I owe Martin and Nikki and Bernie a big thanks. Let me give a little background information about Bruce Coburn. One of Canada's most celebrated artists, he's had an illustrious career shaped by politics, his deep-seated spirituality, and musical diversity through folk, jazz, rock, and world music. He attended the prestigious Berklee College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts, and his guitar playing, both acoustic and electric, has placed him in the company of the world's top instrumentalists. He's also deeply respected for his activism on issues ranging from indigenous rights to the environment and third world debt, working for organizations such as Oxfam, Amnesty International, Doctors Without Borders, and Friends of the Earth. Over a career spanning more than 50 years, Bruce Coburn has written more than 400 songs on 35 albums, of which 23 have received gold or platinum certification, selling more than 9 million albums worldwide. He's been honored with 13 Juno Awards, an induction into both the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he's been made an Officer of the Order of Canada. Our conversation begins with a little background on where his quote-unquote political songs emanate from and how they can be seen as both cathartic expressions of outrage as well as being grounded in the dictum to love your neighbor. Then we move on to how art and culture in relation to economics and politics can be used to influence individuals and maybe even groups before talking about the role of religion in these discussions. And we finish by tossing some more wood on Gavin's woodpile. Fireflies around you like a crown of sparks You blow me a kiss that blurs my vision So, okay, Bruce Coburn, thank you for being here. What I'd like to do is uh, you've been paying attention to the world and writing a lot and singing about it for a a good number of years. Um, I don't know when you would say that you first really started to focus some art on 
social issues, but it's been a while. So um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on kind of where things stand in your eyes right now, whether it's in uh, Canada, the US, just kind of global, however you wanted to do it. And I have gone through what I see in your in your work as a couple themes, and I don't know if you would identify them that way, but just some environmental issues. Uh, if, if a tree falls in the forest, beautiful creatures, keep the world we know, which is a, a new song still addressing these issues. Um, some indigenous issues, the Indian wars, stolen land, a couple others. And then this global social political issues of call democracy, trickle down postcards from Cambodia, if I had a rocket launcher uh, and whatnot. So issues that I think you have addressed or tried to uh, at least talk about in the past. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe just the state of the union in the mind of Bruce Coburn related to some of these social issues. Uh, yeah, well, interesting. The The starting point, really, although I, I wouldn't have articulated it the same way when I actually was starting, my understanding things is sort of I, I hope deepened a little since then, but under the surface, the starting point was always a sense of connectedness and a sense of uh, that I had a, a role to play in in the cosmos, really, but in the world. Since we're talking about the world, I, mm -hmm. what my role in the larger cosmos is, I have no idea. <laughs> if I, yeah. I mean, that's, that could be complete fantasy, but but I feel it. So it's, it starts with with. This oh, okay. Before I was a Christian, I, or before I identified myself as a Christian, I, I, I yeah, I grew up with the trappings of of, uh, of the faith, uh, being compelled to go to Sunday school and and all that. So I, you know, I, I I knew the mythology and I knew the some of the social aspects of or and applications of of that. And part of that was just this the dictum that we're supposed to love our neighbor. So, I mean, it took me a very long time in, in, as, an, as an adult to understand what that meant. And, and in some ways, I'm still working on that. But, but I mean, in terms of my own capacity for love and, and what it means to me, but you don't have to be all that deep into it to get it, the sense that, well, okay, if, if, if everybody's your neighbor and you're supposed to love your neighbor, then it matters what happens to them. Mm. It matters what effect your actions have on them so it starts there and as a songwriter i mean i i very seldom have sat down and deliberately written a song on a particular theme it's just the ideas that come and it's often in response to a, an emotional reaction to something i encounter mm -hmm. so i encounter uh in the case of if i had a rocket launcher i'm in a refugee camp and people are are uh telling me these stories of the tremendous abuse they've been subjected to and and the song grew out of the feelings that that generated uh, and the experience of being in the case of that song in a refugee camp a few hundred yards from the from Mexico's border with Guatemala uh, in Mexico but the, you could hear the military helicopters patrolling the border and among the other tales of abuse that the, that the people told were uh, was the fact that the, that those helicopters every now and then would sort of swing north over Mexican territory and shoot up the camps. Yeah, yeah. And so this, the, the song grew out of this, this sense of outrage at that. Um, and the sense that the incredible poignancy of, of these people barely keeping it together, uh, but definitely keeping it together uh, in these terrible circumstances. And so pretty much all the songs have come about 
in that personal way. Here comes the helicopter. Second time today. Everybody scatters and hopes it goes away. If I had a rocket launcher, I'd make somebody pay. The exception, or an exception, would be uh, you mentioned um, to keep the world we know, which I wrote along with Susan Glukark, whose idea it was actually okay. to, to, to co-write and to and to co-write a song on that theme, on the theme okay. of climate change and and the, the fires that are besetting yeah. it so i mean that's in a case where there was a theme established beforehand and and okay what are we going to say about this and it was a bit more intentional that way but uh we we tossed back and forth over the phone and online and and yeah. came up with a song which which worked out pretty well yeah but for me that's an that's a rare occurrence I, I, most of the time it's like i just get hit by something and it's like okay well if a tree falls, for instance, I, I was listening to a radio documentary on the destruction of rainforests in Borneo okay. and uh, on some college station in Toronto. And I, I had never been in a tropical rainforest, but I certainly knew I'd, I'd seen the movies. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I had been in temperate rainforests in BC and, and, uh, and elsewhere. So I, I kind of had a sense of, of what was going on. And, and the song grew out of grew out of that. Out of, it was again a kind of a sense of outrage, or sense of like we can't let this keep going. And then and the information that's in the song, to the extent that there is information, is stuff that was around. Uh, I mean that that song's old now, but the information wasn't new then either. Like the the rainforest thing in Borneo was new to me, but the the notion that we were having an effect an adverse effect on our climate, uh, on our environment, you know, goes back much further. And, you know, I had read books about that and, and there were a lot of people talking about it. They weren't getting wide coverage, but it all grew from, from, from those kinds of roots. And, and I think as people, we all have a responsibility to each other and to, the, to, to be stewards of the planet. That's the, the phrase that's used. Uh, yeah. And I think that, it, I mean, if you have a public voice, as as anybody who does what I do does to whatever extent, that pub, it's appropriate to use that public voice to exercise that responsibility. So that's, that's a, an underlying motive for me with respect to the songs as well. But this, this is something other. Busy monster eats dark holes in the spirit world. Where wild things have to go To disappear Forever Do you think uh, things are 
have changed? Do you think current state of things, to me, it seems like this is a unique time, but um, maybe, you know, divisiveness and political divisiveness and all about all these issues, but maybe it's cyclical. I, I don't know. But if you, you know, from when you first started to recognize some of these issues, do you think that the issues are still focused, should be focused on now? Or do you think we've seen some changes for the better? That's a tricky one. I I, I don't have a great deal of hope. <laughs> um, right. I I think we've got to keep whacking away at it because the alternative is just suicide, basically. Mm-hmm. But the, the the change that I see is I, th- I think the, fra- the the tendency toward fractiousness among people has always been there. It's, it's I mean we're born fighters and killers. I mean that, that, as a species, that's what we do. I, I, I said it in, in my book, it was a conclusion that I, if, well, maybe a conclusion, not exactly the word, an observation that struck me uh, when I was in, in Mozambique at the end of the Civil War there. Mm-hmm. And it struck me that war is really the default condition of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, we resist that, and we should resist it, and we have to. If, if we don't resist it, that's what pops up. Somebody gets mad and does a bad thing, and then somebody re- retaliates against that bad thing, and it just goes back and forth. People are afraid. We go around in this state of paranoia all the time, mm-hmm. and just some of which is justified and, and appropriate, and some of which is out of control. Yeah. So it, it's um, we're built this way. But if we want to keep on going, which we are also built to do, we have to find the right perspective on, on, on our own natures and, and, and be able to step away from the, the violent reaction to things or, or the greed that promotes violence against people we think we can get away with it with or whether, you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, what the, so the change that, that to me, uh, what makes our current moment different from, from 50 years ago is the internet and the degree to which uh, the corporate agenda has been refined and uh, and or at least the strategies around that have have, have been refined and I, I can't really speak for other countries. I mean, I'm living in the U.S. and I'm, I'm very familiar with my Canadian roots, but but uh, I, I see this happening in North America. It, I think it's also happening all over the world. I think that we, yeah. you know, yeah. that some countries and some some parts of some areas, Europe, maybe uh, a little better at resisting that corporate takeover of our institutions than we are. I'm not sure that's true, but uh, but it, it might be. Here we just see it. It's the 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 government agencies that are responsible for keeping citizen the citizenry safe from from the excesses of business that were, you know, that you see if you read Jack London or you read uh, Upton yeah. Sinclair, or those, those yeah, guys, yeah. early 20th century, yeah. you know, they were writing about unfettered corporate greed right. and it, a negative effect it was having on people. So, and partly through the, their writings, laws were changed to, uh, to offset those negative effects. Now we find ourselves in an era when those laws have been, that end runs have been done around those those regulations and and now you know the gov- the government agencies that are supposed to be keeping corporate greed in check are run by the corporations right right yeah financed by them 
I mean, that's this. This is a terrible change. Combine that with the capacity of of the internet to divide us, to to bring out the worst in us, uh, and social media particularly. But but the misinformation is all over the place, mm-hmm. um, and in every direction. Mm-hmm. So you, we, we're we're put in a position where. You really can't trust anybody or anything. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, and that's, you know, we can't live that way. Yeah. We can't uh, agree on, can't agree on basic, basic facts. You know, we just, everything is yeah. so nuanced that, differently. Well, yeah. And then so, so you're, you're forced to be sort of live in your little individual cocoon and mm-hmm. go, well, this is what I think is going on. And, and you don't, you know, we're discouraged from listening to other people's points of view and engaging in civil dialogue with, with other people of differing points of view. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this, this, we got to get, we got to get over this somehow. A quick note about what you saying that we're kind of hardwired to, for conflict or war, you know, interestingly, it seems like we were also hardwired to cooperate, you know, because we wouldn't have survived as a species without cooperating with each other. Right. So like both are there, but how do we get one to, to be the, well, the more powerful default than the other? Well, it, I mean, historically, we, we cooperate with each other very intensely when we're under attack. Right. Yeah. Right. For <laughs> that, sure. that, that, all of a sudden, you, I mean, this is the paradox of, of going in war zones. You, you'll see the best and the worst. Yeah. Uh, the, the same situation that produces atrocities also produces acts of selfless heroism, a sense of community and, and shared experience that's really deep and, and rich. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's a balancing act. And, and I don't know how we get out of this sort of individual. It's like we, we need to be more of a soup. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and less, uh, less of uh, whatever we are, an aggregate or something, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, but how to get there, I'm not sure. Well, I'll give you a couple minutes to, to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll come back to you in a minute. Um so, you know, the, your songs, I'm just talking about your what I would call loosely call political songs, and they're not all about Republican, Democrat, you know, Tory labor, but just people with power or without power. And, and you kind of alluded to this a minute ago, but do you view your music as like specifically as a vehicle for being able to make the change? Or is it just the cathartic? Uh, I was angry and I had to get it out or both. Uh, I, uh, or. Well, I think both of those things are in there. I don't think either, I don't think together they add up to the whole picture. I think the the effect a song can have on an individual is is different from the effect it can have uh, on a social scale. I mean, the songs we are all touched by songs that you know various kinds of songs, whatever, and and touched deeply sometimes, you know. And then, and if you run across somebody who's been touched by the same songs. You, you can have a conversation about that and it and there, and it becomes a kind of a bonding agent mm-hmm. uh, if you multiply that enough times then the song becomes a bonding agent for a larger group of people yeah but but I think for that to really happen people's feelings have to be kind of out there waiting to be touched by that song okay. and uh, and I I think so the, so what happens is a song like we shall overcome, for instance, it's a very moving song. If you just heard it out of the blue and never heard it, never encountered it before, but uh, as part of the social movement, as as an anthem of the social movement, it 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 had 
the function of being an anthem is poorly articulated. But the, but basically the the power of that song came from the fact that it was adopted and shared by a bunch of people of like mind and heart, and um, and then it then the power is amplified through the song, but uh, or that that those sentiments are amplified through the song. But in order for the song to have any power, it has to be kind of adopted by a group. Okay. Uh, okay. So so uh, and uh, the same would apply to any song, I think. But there's I mean there's a reason why we sing hymns in church. Why, why we have national anthems that are supposed to stir up feelings of, of patriotism and pride and so on. Music works on us like that. It's, you can't separate the music from the culture. Okay. Right. I, I don't right. think, I mean, right. that's why the anthem works because you grow up with it. Right. And then, then you make the connection when you hear it. So um, pop songs, mm-hmm. you know, folk songs have the same kind of relationship. That's the great segue because that's kind of the meat of this is about I wanted to know about this potential for art to make that kind of change. I really actually got started on this particular theme a couple of years ago. I heard I read a Joni Mitchell quote. I don't remember when she said it, but it was in Uncut Magazine. And she said, when the world becomes a massive mess with nobody at the helm, it's time for artists to make their mark. And I was kind of in, intrigued by that. And I remember Nona, Nina Simone once said an artist's duty is to reflect the times, but that's different to reflect than to to create, you know, or to change or something like that. And so that's when I started to reach out to to artists and broadly defined artists, painters, poets, musicians. You were the first person actually that I reached out to. So it's, here we are. It took a while, but we're, we're finally knocking it out. I went to a, a PhD program that was kind of a Marxist program. And we have this notion in sociology, do you... If you don't want to make these changes, positive social change, however you define it, should you go through economic channels, political channels, or cultural channels? And so my bias was always economics, fix the, fix the economic stuff, and everything kind of falls after that. But um, people I've talked to in this you know field, uh, I've come to be more on the cultural, see the cultural side. And I, I found a quote, I think it's a poet named uh, Alex Caldero. Artists have always been agents of cultural change. They can sway opinions, direct resistance or reform. An art-based approach is necessary because it stimulates empathy. And empathy is necessary to achieve social and environmental justice. To achieve real change, activists need to work through cultural means. So I've asked artists that before, and many of them are like, ah, you know, they, they're not as confident in that as I would like to think they, that, that they should be. In an email exchange with Ry Cooter, and Ry Cooter has written a lot of really great political stuff, he was saying, no, I don't think it can. I used to think so, and maybe in the day of Pete Seeger or the unions and stuff, maybe it did, but he said now, the internet, as you brought up, he said, I don't think it can make change. So I'm kind of hoping you would disabuse me of that notion and give me some inspiration that no maybe this is really what you do is you you alter culture first well i think i i think all those elements probably have to be put together somehow they it's right. to be effective i i i don't think any any one of them is going to move the move the bar by itself mm-hmm. uh, as i was talking about the you know, the muckrakers sinclair and and 
Jack London and, mm-hmm. and that crowd, their writings did have an effect mm-hmm. because they. But that was in an era when it, people looked to uh, to literature, well, at all for yeah. one thing, <laughs> yeah. but also also uh, but looked looked to there for for truths, mm-hmm. and and now I mean we, my young daughter still reads like mad. I mean she's she's eleven years old. She goes through books at an incredible rate, you know, fantasies, fictions, whatever, but sure, she's reading. reading. Sure. And, and uh, so it's not, it's not dead, but uh, it's, it, I mean, people look at their screens for information now. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, and you can look on your screen, you can see Russell Brand doing whatever, what Russell Brand does. Or you, can, <laughs> you can see Bannon doing whatever Bannon does. And yeah, I mean, it's all out there and, yeah. and you can see, healthy happy things too uh, and but it's it's again it's it's that the fragmenting and the fracturing of everything that's uh problematic i i mean i have eclectic interests and just i mean it's my nature i i, I get bored easily and so i if if i were to spend very much time online i would be kind of doing the equivalent of channel surfing yeah yeah my my wife listens to lots of blogs and mm-hmm. And I've, I've always avoided that sort of that whole world in a way until pretty recently. And, I, and I've discovered like a whole bunch of neat stuff. Yeah, <laughs> there's, yeah there's, there's something to it. <laughs> but, but you know, well, stuff about poetry. I mean, who knew, you know, that anybody's talking about poetry online because yep. to hunt it down, but it's there. Mm-hmm. The culture, I think, I don't think the looking at the economics can, can answer the, the needs by itself. Like, uh, would it be the same as as trying to have a song solve all the problems I, I, for different reasons? But uh, without a culture that wants economic justice, you're not going to have it. Yeah. And and it, and and the, the the motivation for economic justice has to be shared widely enough that the people who would naturally be inclined to have a lot more are willing to give up some of it. <laughs> out of altruism, out of or out of love for their neighbors, perhaps, right. or or just out of social pressure, right. just like oh yeah, if I'm seen doing this, I'm look, I'll look like a bad guy. I'm going to feel like crap, so I won't do it. So here's here here's some money. Okay, um, you know you, you have to have that kind of atmosphere before before you're going to get economic justice because um, mm-hmm. you can't enforce it. I mean, the people who end up doing the enforcing end up getting all the money. Sure, right, right. You no, know, that's that's the history. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they do go together somehow. I like the idea of culture being uh, the way that can grease those wheels, um, but sure, it can't happen on its own. Martin Joseph answered that a similar question, and he said, no, I don't think it can. But then the next breath, he told me that you can get up in the morning and hear a song, and it motivates you to go do something, and then you start to make change. And I'm like, all right, there you go. That's what, I'm, that's what I was hoping. You know, but It can't happen the, the, alone. Yeah, this is the dichotomy between the, the personal effect of art which packs an emotional punch mm-hmm. uh and and the broad social effect it's they're not the same thing but they certainly r- are related to each other in uh, right. each other in that kind of way the the, the downside of this is uh, like or the negative the dark side of of putting the, the cultural element together with the economic element is fascism mm-hmm. uh because you, you uh, is, is propaganda basically you can sway public opinion Right. If you keep telling that lie long enough, right. people will believe it, right. as we as we know from 
sure. from the days of Goebbels and, and 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 from our own experience in the last few years. And, right. uh, and, yeah. and you know, I mean, then the bullshit flies in every direction. It's like it's not just the right, sure. you know, it's not just the corporate interest and not just the, uh, you know, the whoever is lying to, to us all. It's like it's it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the the progressive left is is full of fantasy. That, that promulgated at us all that as much as the, as the, the, the Trump right is, it, I mean, it's a different fantasy, sure. but, but it, it's, everybody's just kind of going with the, whatever flag their tribe is waving. And, and yeah. uh, there's not a lot of people that I, whose voices I hear in the public that represent anything very reasonable. I, I, uh, there's a few, but. Yeah. Quick one about religion. On your most recent album, Osono Moon, there's a song called Orders. Quote, the drunk who tags the bathroom stall, the proud boy headed for his fall, the pastor preaching shades of hate, self-inflating heads of state. The list as long as I recall, our orders said to love them all. So I'm guessing this is a reference to orders to God and Christianity. And uh, I've read and you mentioned that you became a Christian, at least you identified in the 70s. And a number of your songs, you know, I've talked about issues of faith over the years. So I was wondering, I'd like to know how we can use religion in ways that produce compassionate social change. Because as you likely know, you know, quote unquote, Christianity is often used by politicians, at least here in the States. I don't know about other places to repress and oppress, which isn't my understanding. I was raised Catholic, but it's not my understanding of the life and words of Christ. And it's not Christians versus non-Christians. These people call themselves Christians as well. So how do you utilize religious faith through the vehicle of your art to address some of these issues? How has it informed it? Well, you know, I mean, that's a loaded uh, area for sure. I I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of Christians out there that wouldn't think I'm much of a Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would invite them to step back from their judgments. (laughs) <laughs> and, and let God be the judge, what we're also invited to do. And and the prime thing, I mean, the essence of, of Jesus' teaching was those those two phrases: love love God above all things, and love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't. He doesn't say anything about loving your country. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say anything about about uh, colonization of anywhere. Mm-hmm. When the centurion, the Roman soldier, comes to him asking for his kid to be healed, he 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 doesn't. He, he doesn't tell him to go away and not, and not be a soldier anymore. Mm-hmm. Be who you are, but but keep these things in front of you. So, uh, you know, this is what we all need to be doing. And that was the point of the song Orders, really, was is to remind me and everybody else of that, uh, because it's so easy to to be to be sort of knocked off that little fairly small balancing point you know, by, by the winds of culture and, or, and politics. So, okay. And, and a fear, which is a, a huge, oh, sure. I mean, this is the thing we all go around with, with a load of trauma and a load of fear, you know, mm-hmm. and the trauma produces rage and fear and, and rage act on each other. And, you know, we, this is one of the reasons why we fight so much, but um, each of us really has to find that point where we can step away from it from the the reflexes and and use the brains that we've been given and the heart that that are willing to love like i mean everybody's heart i think i mean i maybe it's going out on a little bit not allowing for some doubt here but 
it seems to me like pretty much everybody's heart is is waiting for love or mm. or experiencing it mm. and uh the, the people who who appear not to be doing that are people who are too afraid to do that mm. Af- afraid of of what it will ask of them afraid of uh betrayal afraid of whatever and we have to soldier on so to speak in in the face of that fear and love anyway mm. that's great yeah thank you for that i'm almost finished are you okay on time yeah you're good okay good Okay, uh, so I like to ask people uh, that produce works this question. There's a late communication scholar named George Gerbner, taught at Penn for a long time, and he once said, the telling of stories has always been the principal shaper of human behavior. Cave walls, the Bible, whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. Assuming it, that's true, and you know, you, you might disagree with it, but as someone who could broadly be defined as a folk artist and other kind of artist, uh, what stories do you does your art tell or try to tell when you step back on it and you're riding off to the sunset? Like what stories do you think your art is telling in a way that shapes behavior? I've always felt like it was, I mean, it it sort of sounds weird to say it, but but it's my story, but my story as a human in the world now. Hmm. uh, So I'm leaving a trail, whether anybody would ever be motivated to follow it is, is out of my hands. Mm-hmm. But of course, I I hope that I will be a positive influence for for somebody sometime. Uh, but 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 uh, that doesn't go beyond hoping because you can't engineer that, and it would be inappropriate to try. But the, but I I've always just felt like the the songs are uh, in a way a record of my spiritual journey, and. As such, they may be useful to somebody else on it who finds themselves on a similar path. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about as far as I go with with that idea. Sure. Uh, that's great, though, because um, that's all you can control. Uh, lightning round. So, do you have? Are there any younger folks, like young artists, either musicians or otherwise, um, that you think are doing kind of in your footsteps, like doing good work or trying to to make these kinds of statements or issues that are the next generation? Uh, you know, I'm absolutely sure there are, but I don't know who they are. Okay. Uh, I, I don't, I, I'm not out there circulating enough to really have much of a sense, but I, uh, I know there's, uh, there's all kinds of people. I, the, one of the, um, kind of touchstones for me over, over the last several decades has been a festival, an arts festival in England called the Greenbelt Festival. Okay. You were just there recently, right? In August? Yeah. It's a Christian uh, festival, quote unquote, but but it's not. They don't limit the, the their. They don't limit themselves in terms of what arts are represented, and they don't limit themselves in terms of of uh, what kind of spiritualities are represented. I mean, I had dinner at a friend's place in London. The a couple of nights before the festival, it was my friends plus some of the people that were going to be at at the fest. Three of us actually. There was. Uh, a theologian from from Tennessee, mm. 
uh, and there was Brian Eno. Oh wow, and, Brian Eno, jeez, and me, and and there we're and we're all. I mean, everybody's coming from pretty different places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not only, I mean, my my friends are Christians. Uh, they're involved in Anglican or you know, there it's just Church of England, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but at a distance in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it was a fantastic gathering of of minds and and articulate people, which is sure. oh all. yeah, for sure. <laughs> There was a certain amount of of wine and whiskey flowing, that, which <laughs> enabled some of the articulation. But but uh, but it was, I mean, that festival, that that kind of gathering is typical of of that festival. So that you'll hear music from from all over the cultural map, and there'll be people speaking out of their experience. People people who are dealing with social justice issues. People who are dealing with with spiritual issues which may or may not be christian and uh, um and there's this fantastic atmosphere of of uh exploration in a mm-hmm. way not mm-hmm. exactly dialogue because people aren't aren't, aren't debating exactly yeah. but they're presenting their points of view and and in in this atmosphere of of receptivity and um so you know the more of those kinds of things we can have for sure the, the better the odds of, of us surviving, I think. But yeah, I think Martin Joseph told me about that because uh, I talked to him yeah. in maybe July, and he said he was, he was going to that. Yeah, and he spoke very highly of that festival, also. Yeah, yeah he he wasn't at the dinner, but he but but he, he I saw him at the festival. Yeah. Last one, I'd like to finish with this. I haven't asked specific questions about like a particular song, but I did want to finish with a question about Gavin's woodpile. And um, it kind of encapsulates the three, quote unquote, themes that I was seeing, indigenous issues, environmental issues, just geopolitical issues. Um, my understanding of it, I read somewhere, um, Gavin was a person, but the woodpile out in some house out in, in, in Canada in the woods. But it's more also the idea of just putting the wood on the pile with these issues that keep coming up in life, kind of a metaphor. Uh, and I have used it that way. So I hope I interpret it right. But over the years, you know, you see that they just passed this law that doesn't allow something. And I would say it's another log on Gavin's wood pile. But what, uh, so I like that notion of it, but at the end, towards the end, you say, and I'm left to conclude there's no human answer near. And, and I'm kind of, I think that way sometimes, but then you say right after that, but there's a narrow path to a life to come that explodes into sight with the power of the sun. A mist rises as the sun goes down and there's a light that left forms a kind of crown. The earth is bread. The sun is wine. It's a sign of hope. That's ours for all time. Do you have, do you have that hope? Yeah. I mean, actually to, to, to clarify, I was actually chopping wood. Okay. Uh, and, and <laughs> when I got the idea and, and it was, Gavin was my, uh, he, he, the late Gavin was, was father of my first wife okay. uh, yeah the i mean the, the image of this the earth as bread the sun as wine i i stole from Teilhard de chardin a catholic theologian okay. uh, who beautifully described he was an archaeologist also and he was on an archaeological expedition in siberia and, and this is in one of his books he talks about this and, and he's very far away from any place where he can receive the sacraments and he was a priest he was a jesuit a Jesuit priest and so there he is out there in, in the boonies for him he had this fantastic mystical capacity to to feel the, the spirit I suppose for want of a better way to put it and 
he realizes he has this vision of the earth as bread and the setting sun as wine and that hmm. and he can he can receive the body and blood of Christ that way. And uh, I, I thought that was a really powerful thing. And, and I, I allowed myself a license. But yeah, that hope is there. I, I, whether you see it in Christian terms, I do. And it, it makes it maybe more specific than it might be for somebody else. But really, I, I can't get rid of it. I can't, I can't get rid of the hope. I look around and there's so much crap and there's so much to be worried about. And I think I look at my 11 year old daughter and, and my grandkids, of my older daughter. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I, I, I think what kind of place are we handing them? I mean, it's an obvious notion for anybody that's got kids and yet I can't get rid of the hope. Mm. So, so let's hope the hope <laughs> is well found. <laughs> Well, thank you. I took a lot of your time, uh, but it was a real pleasure to talk to you, Bruce. I appreciate it. All right, better conversation, yeah. All right, thank you very, thank you very much. Take care. All right, all the best to you. Yeah, you too. my deep pleasure to talk with Bruce Coburn and I hope you enjoyed it as well. If so, please like rate and share the podcast in all the usual places. Let me offer my sincerest thanks to him and to Bernie Finkelstein, Martin Joseph and Nikki Woodhead for making the interview possible. Aho. Everything came together so quickly that I'm just now stepping back and taking a deep breath, taking stock of how it went after a few years of hoping and planning for it. My first impression was how polite and gracious he was throughout. I asked for 15 to 20 minutes and we talked for 45 without him ever looking at his watch, tapping his toes, or otherwise making me feel rushed. In terms of content, it was inspiring to hear his motivations for creating art and more broadly living life day to day. As a non-Christian, I don't make putting God first a life maxim, but I do ascribe to loving your neighbor as yourself, and that's close enough for me. It's not a revolutionary concept, but it's certainly not a guiding principle, in practice at least, for nearly enough folks. As he said, it matters what happens to people, and it matters how our actions impact others. Basic, but somehow still profound. Let me also mention that these so-called political songs are what made me want to interview him for this podcast theme, but they're only a slice of his overall artistic output. I'd equally enjoy chatting with him for another 45 minutes about his love songs, rich with imagery and sophistication of language. Alas, I'm not sure Bernie would pull back the curtain for me again to get the chance, but maybe one day. So let me encourage you to become a site member, which just entails creating a username and password, and you can comment directly on the page after each post. I'd love to hear your thoughts. But if you prefer, you can email me questions or comments at jr at oursociallandscape.com. Finally, I'll remind you that Our Social Landscape is a listener-supported blog and podcast, so consider making a one-time donation or recurring monthly donation by clicking on the yellow Donate button on the homepage. Thanks for listening. throw you away for some years
nothing And I toss them in a log on Gavin's wood pile And wonder at the lamp warm window's welcome smile Explodes into sight 
It's a sign. 